So hey guys, we are back for another podcast with Peter Brandt, and it's been a long time coming, and Peter's been busy, and I've been busy, and we finally uh, connected again and said, hey, we need to finish the story of Texas Jack Vermillion, and we're going to do that today um, because he and I are already talking about doing another podcast about Johnny Tyler because that one is going to be great. I love that book. Um, Before we get into the podcast, we have some shout outs. Uh, We want to shout out um, our friends over at the Wild West History Association. You can find them at wildwesthistory.org. And the reason I want to talk about them is um, my gut feeling tells me there's a lot of people that want deep research history. They don't want to see stuff on a photo sharing app or, you know, they don't want to get things secondhand and then ends up being a lie or, you know, we're back to the Doc Holliday picture and it being John... um, Escapul, Johnny, you know, and it's, we know that that's not true. And so the Wild West History Association, they research everything. And Peter is one of them that writes amazing stories. And the journal this month or this quarter is over a quarter inch thick. It's 105 pages long and it's amazing paper. Like the paper is super thick because it's really kept, it's designed to be kept in your library for continual research continual provenance about history and, you know, using it as a spot to go back to and read about when you're researching a topic. And uh, the the subscriptions, they're, they're really super reasonable. Uh, it's 75 bucks the first year, two years for 125 or three years for 175 And the three years, the best savings. I mean, it's just a great savings. And you get the journal and you get roundups, you know, before and after the uh, the um, annual events, you just get a lot with it, and you're you're able to also connect with the authors and historians and researchers in a way that you might not have been able to do, and that's through the journal. So check them out at uh, wildwesthistory.org. Also, want to give a shout out to my friend Mark Boardman and all the guys and gals over at the Tombstone Epitaph. You can find them at tombstoneepitaph.com, and that's tombstone. We know how to spell tombstone, and then epitaph, e p i t a p h dot com. And a one-year subscription is twenty-five bucks. Two years, forty-five, or three is sixty. So it's really better off for you to do three at sixty. You save, you know, over ten dollars. I think it's like fifteen bucks. You're gonna save, but. The one thing about the epitaph that I love is I want to be a part of history. Um, The epitaph makes me uh, be a part of history because when I get it, I'm holding the same newspaper that the Clantons or the McClowries or the Earps or, you know, Holiday and all the people in Tombstone, they read that paper too at some point and, um, and they made it part of their life was reading the epitaph. And you can be a part of that life too, that tombstone history, by getting the epitaph sent directly to your door. Like you don't have to do anything. And then it shows up and oh my gosh, there is such great writing. I think there was 20 pages in the last one, 20, 25 pages. And it was so much. There was book reviews and movie reviews and epitaph and goings on in tombstone and articles, just great stuff. I think, Peter, do you get the epitaph? Um, I, I write for the epitaph, oh, you write for but, the epitaph. Uh, yeah, I've written a couple of, um, articles for the epitaph. Um, I gotta say, I haven't renewed my subscription and that's very bad of me. I need to get on to Mark Boardman about that. Wow. 
Well, we had a great podcast. Um, Peter obviously has some technical difficulties because he's not subscribing to the epitaph. And, um, <laughs> and uh, But honestly, it's just two really great ways to get true provenance, true history, is through the Tombstone Epitaph and becoming a member of the WWHA. Now, this podcast is a continuation of um, part one and part two, where we really broke down, actually Peter did, broke down about him finding Jack Vermillion. Um, part two was crazy with a trunk and a false bottom. And when they pulled the false bottom, there was all sorts of cool stuff at the bottom of it. And it was a crazy story, and we're going to continue with it. Uh, if you want to find anything about what Peter's doing or any books, and you want to order them online and have them shipped right to your door, you can do so by contacting Peter at the tombstonevendetta.com. That's tombstone, V-E-N-D-E-T-T-A, vendetta.com. And all of his books are for sale there, and you can contact him. And uh, you may not get an immediate response because he's super busy, but it's a great place to contact him and get his books. And that's the goal because his books are insane. They're just, they're beautiful. Um, really well written, amazing photos. I'm a picture guy. So uh, you can get a hold of Tomb at Peter at tombstonevendetta.com and get a hold of his books there. Anything you want to add? Um, just that I am very, very open to anybody contacting me. Oh, okay. I, I know some people shy away from that, but I'm the opposite to that. So I, I have um, there's a link on the um, on the Tombstone Vendetta website, and it's very easy to contact me, and I, I will always reply to you. Um, I may not have all the answers, um, but I will always reply, and I'm, I welcome uh, comments. Um, uh, good and bad or questions uh, about anything that I've written or proposed to write. So uh, anybody who's listening, they can reach out to me that way on the website and I'm happy to respond. And, you know, there's not a lot of writers and historians that do that. So um, huge kudos to Peter for that. And uh, um, definitely reach out to him because he's a wealth of knowledge. When we spoke last, we spoke about you finding... Um, I think it was, and correct me if I'm wrong, finding out that the person that you were looking for was not Texas Jack, that you had yeah, exhausted. So what? Continue with that. So what had happened after the trunk, you found the false bottom, and realizing yeah, so that I'm on the wrong guy. Yeah, so that family were very, very accommodating, and uh, I discovered through all the things that we located in their trunk, that their ancestor, John Wilson Vermillion, had actually um, forged his own way in the West. He he was uh, the city marshal of Webb City, Missouri, um, and he was on their police force um, from 1879 to 1881. So when you go onto Wikipedia, you'll see a photo of John Wilson Vermillion, and he'll be incorrectly tagged as Texas Jack, but the information we found in the family trunk proved that he was actually a lawman, but it was in Webb City, Missouri, and that was a pretty tough town uh, in itself. But he was the city marshal there, and then he resigned from the job, uh, and he became a policeman on the police force there, and he was there from 1879 to 1881. So he was it was impossible for him to have been in two places at once. So he was not 
Texas Jack for me. And, and that was proven um, through all the correspondence. And he had wanted posters. He had all sorts of things that he kept from his time as a lawman in Missouri. So we established through the, the help of that family that everyone had, had listed the wrong guy. And they still continue to do to do so today. Um, even some lazy um, publishers come out with that photo. And I'm sure a lot of people who've searched for him will find it easily on the web. It's, it's a photo of a Civil War soldier with a sabre and a pistol, and it's titled Texas Jack, but it's actually John Wilson Vermillion, and the, fa the photo is real, but the tagging is wrong. He wasn't Texas Jack Vermillion of Tombstone fame. So once we'd established that, it, this, the, this, um, the task then became to find out who the real Texas Jack for me and was and and I wanted to emphasize today on the podcast the value of doing primary research and when I say primary research in, with primary documents it means going to the Arizona State Historical Society uh, sorry the State Archive or the Arizona Historical Society or the Cochise County uh, Archive and actually digging through the original records because when you do that you're coming up with documents that are contemporary of the time. So we're not talking about folklore. We're not talking about family stories and we're not talking about people who write historical novels and throw in, you know, some, some false things. We're t I'm talking about the original documents recorded at the time the events took place and have been housed in these libraries and archives for, for, for the 100 years so that researchers who are interested in the truth can actually dig them out and find out the facts of what happened. So that was what was required to to get to the, the bottom of the story. And, and to do that, um, I found there was a, a, a vermilion listed in the 1880 census in Silver City, New Mexico, which is just over the border, very, very close proximity to Tombstone. And that was the 1880 census. So that was taken uh, in June. And it listed an interesting carpenter there. And his name was Jay Overmean, and he was age 34. And Wyatt Earp had said in his recollections in later years that uh, Texas Jack's real name was John Vermillion. Uh, and that he'd been a carpenter by trade. So that immediately piqued my interest, and I, I thought this, this could be the guy. So in 1880, we're looking at the original census document, and there there's this J. O. Vermillion, age 34, um, said he'd been born in Virginia, uh, and that was the start of the process. So from there... Um, he moved, being a carpenter, he was obviously looking for work and the, the big boom town on the map at that stage in mid-1880 was Tombstone. So we find him next in Tombstone and he registers to vote. So back in the day, they kept the, the voter registries um, in the county and uh, Tombstone was part of Pima County at that time. So we find, he, we find this J.O. Vermeer carpenter age 34 still, he turns up and he registers to vote in Tombstone on October 17, 1880. And that's another important key primary source because it matches directly with the 
a couple of months earlier when he'd uh, been listed on the census. So we know it's the same guy. He, he's provided exactly the same details as he did uh, on the census as he did with the voter registry. So I know that I'm on the right track. And then when uh, Cochise County was actually carved out of Pima County and, and they formed their own uh, county, um, in February of 1881. So you had this giant Pima County being cut um, into two counties, basically, with Co- the forming of Cochise County with Tombstone as the county seat. So we find that this same guy, John Overmillion, then asks for his voter registry to be moved, obviously, from the old Pima County to the new Cochise County. And so we have a third cog in the wheel there with the same guy. We know he's in Tombstone still, and he's asking for his voter registry to be transferred to the new county. So, you know, this is exciting for a researcher when, when the, the dots start joining up and they're all heading to Tombstone. Uh, and then something... Um, that's vital to the story happened in June of 1881. Tombstone experienced a devastating fire and um, fire was the scourge of most of these frontier boom towns because most of them were all constructed out of lumber. So they, they were, um, and in the desert it was bone dry at times. So you had this um, perfect situation for fire and it was, it was very, very dangerous, and it was probably the most dangerous um, thing threatening a town in the on the frontier was a fire because they weren't well stocked with firefighting gear, um, and fire spread very quickly. So, in June of 1881, Tombstone goes up in flames, and the main street, Allen Street, where most of the businesses are located, is damaged um, by this terrible fire, and. The chief of police at the time, the newly crowned chief of police at the time, was Virgil Earp, and he needed to secure the sites to prevent looting and to prevent lot jumping and to prevent theft. And so what he needed to do, his police force wasn't big enough at the time to, to do that job. So what he needed to do was employ a special deputies who would patrol Allen Street um, to stop any potential looting or thievery. Um, and so he needed a special list of deputies that were going to be employed for a specific period. And that document that um, where they signed on, he signed up deputies to do the job, that document contains some interesting names, and one of them was John Overmillion. And so... This is where we find Vermillion's first interaction officially with the Earps. So Virgil Earp signs J. O. Vermillion up as a special deputy to protect Allen Street after the fire. He also signed up his brother, Warren Earp. So you have this connection building between Vermillion and Earp. And again, that's gold for a, a researcher because it actually ties them physically together. They were actually working together in June of 1881, and he was a paid um, special deputy for Virgil Earp. And then later, Tombstone rebuilds very quickly. And then later that same year, uh, we find the same guy, John Overmean, um, registering to vote 
in December of 1881. Um, and that document um, is housed at the Arizona Historical Society, as was Virgil Earp's um, deputy list. So in the, uh, in the fifth, uh, what I call the, the fifth primary source there that I've just mentioned, the voter registry, he lists his full name as John Overmean. He's now age 36, which is correct. Um, he's listed as a carpenter, and we know that uh, this is the guy. I'm now 100% short certain that this is Texas Jack because Wyatt had said his full name was John Vermillion, said he was a carpenter. Uh, that matches completely with all the, the details that he gave when he registered to vote uh, and with the census taker, and we know he's associated with the Earps because Virgil deputised him. So now, after all these years, I've finally found the the actual guy. I know his full name, John Overmillion. I know his age. I know um, that he said he was born in Virginia, and I know that he said he was born in 1845. So armed with all that information, the key then is to go to a genealogical expert to try and locate John Overmean in the Vermean family tree. So that's the power of the primary research that I mentioned at the start of the podcast. If you go to the it, – it takes time and it, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of research, but if you go to these libraries and historical societies and start digging, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you come up with with what you need, and and that's what happened in this case. So, but, but I'm going to ask you: the Arizona History Museum is downtown Tucson. Yep. And I've been there. It's not just an archive for written history, but a person who loves pictorial history. It's even just as amazing, is it not? Yes. It, it's. Uh, it's. It's. <clears throat> But it is an historical society, so it's not just interested in um, the Earps and, and uh, Tombstone. It, it's interested in all of Arizona's history. So they will have all sorts of things on display there. Uh, I think last time I was there, they had a stagecoach. They did. Um, but but it, it is a wonderful museum as well as being an archive. So it caters to everybody who is interested in history from a physical point of view where they can go and see a stagecoach, see tools, see uh, guns, see relics from, from that era. Uh, and then they have their research and library attached to that. So if you want to dig deeper, you can go in there and, and actually look at original documents. So it covers, it covers everything and it, and it is a, um, a wonderful research uh, resource, sorry, in, in Tucson. And then the other one you mentioned was the county records, and I think that's in Bisbee. Yeah, that's correct. So um, Tombstone eventually um, faded in terms of its importance to the county because the mines, um, the mines were flooded and uh, mining became very difficult if not impossible. So um, the county seat was actually moved to Bisbee, and so that's why the county records and the county archive records are held down there in Bisbee. And that's a wonderful facility um, as well that that really cherishes and uh, holds on to a lot of that old um, 
record from from that county. So they will hold tax records, they hold um, the deed records, they hold records of when someone sold a property or a mine, when someone bought a property or a mine. Um, I believe they have some of the births, deaths and marriages as well down there. So that is is another great facility if you're interested in researching. But that one's specific to Cochise County, whereas the Arizona Historical Society covers um, all of Arizona. When you mentioned about John Vermillion being a carpenter, and the fire. Yes. Yes. He was intimately involved with the rebuild of Tombstone as a carpenter, correct? I would have to assume that he would, his skills would have been in great demand because, as I said, everything was, um, was lumber, basically. Um, to, to build that quickly, they needed carpenters, and I'm sure he was extremely busy after he'd fulfilled his duties as a, as a temporary deputy. Um, yeah, carpenters uh, were very, very important to to build these boom towns very quickly. So as we're moving forward, John Vermillion has been deputized. You realize you realize that you're finally on to something, and it's really starting to take shape, and it's starting to look like that's your guy. Was there a single point? When you did it, maybe like a eureka moment, and you put it up in your eureka, I have found it. It's was there a moment like that? Yeah, there was, and and it was you know when when those five primary sources that I that I've just gone through when when you lined them all up in chronological order and they all matched, and that was very important that there were no discrepancies between any of those five primary sources they all matched you just said i said to myself this is it this is the guy and and from that point i knew i had to get into the genealogical records i had to get into the family records of the vermillions to try to locate john o vermillion born in virginia in in 1845 and the guy the two people really that that helped to do that gene smith was was one of them um, and Doug Vermillion, who was a direct descendant out of the Vermillion family, he had kept uh, and maintains a huge family tree dating back to the 1600s when the first Vermillions came to America from France. So he was the go-to guy for that. And he'd been involved in the project. I'd mentioned his name in the previous podcast. I knew I needed somebody in within the family who specialised in that type of thing. Uh, because the Vermillion family spread far and wide over the previous couple of hundred years in American history, and Doug was the guy. Doug uh, joined the dots. He he went into the vast record that he had of the, of his own Vermillion family and went back through all the family trees, all the branches, and he found John O. Vermillion, and he found um, that he had been a, a Civil War veteran, um, for the Union, uh, he had um, enlisted uh, at a very early age and he'd fought for the Union. And that was also important too because we know that um, both James Earp and Virgil Earp fought for the Union. Um, I knew from previous research that Dan Tipton, another member of the Vendetta Posse, had uh, fought for the Union. Um, so... There was probably a, 
uh, a synergy there too that they they were like-minded. They were Civil War Union veterans, and I'm sure that helped with the Meehan's um, introduction to the Earps. Um, they had that in common, especially he and Virgil. They were veterans, so um, they shared that, and I'm sure that was a strong bond back in 1880, 1881. If you'd fought for the Union, um, you know, it was like a brotherhood, I, I would think. So that was important too. But it ultimately, it was vital because the union provided pensions for uh, their soldiers who were no longer able to work or had suffered um, some um, sort of injury during the war or injury later that prevented them from working. And um, the, the government introduced a pension for union soldiers and that became very important to the research because luckily for us, John uh, over me and had lodged a claim for a pension. And once he did that, um, he was he had to provide details of his personal life to the Veterans Association so that they could investigate his claim because there was a lot of fake um, claims, as you can imagine. There was a lot of fraudsters trying to say they'd fought for the union because they wanted the pension. So there was a process involved in getting a pension and it was quite rigorous. There were pension investigators and you had to come up with several witnesses uh, to to validate your claim for for the, the meagre pension. Um, so he, in later life, um, after, his, after his adventures, uh, he actually did make a claim for the, the pension and that, that proved vital too because, as I say, another original document from the era uh, that had forms filled out by him, forms signed by him, forms witnessed um, that were held uh, in the Washington um, Archive, Washington, D.C. Uh, National Archive, hold those records. But a researcher can obtain those records by lodging the appropriate application, paying the, the fee that's required, and they will send you a copy of the union soldier's uh, pension claim. And I did that, and I was very surprised because I'd done it in the past for different people, and their pension files were quite small. So... Um, they, they vary in size depending on the nature of the claim and, and whether or not the, the, the soldier had was easily proven to, to have been a member of the union. But in John Vermeen's case, because he'd led such a colourful life and he'd uh, led such an adventurous life on the frontier, he ended up claiming his pension very late in life and that meant that um, witnesses and fellow soldiers were, that were still alive uh, when he made his claim were hard to come by. So we find that his his pension file is huge. It's it's triple anything I'd ever witnessed before. And they came back to me. Uh, this is the uh, the VA uh, came back to me on my application and said, "I'm sorry, but you're going to have to pay." Uh, another whatever it was, I think it was an extra $100 on top of the 75 because the his particular file was 300 pages long. So that's like a jackpot to a researcher. That's like – that's one another one of those eureka moments you mentioned earlier where a researcher will say, 
this has got to contain some really great stuff. When you're talking about 300 pages, and I just I ordered it sight unseen. I just thought I'm going to pay the money and and read this guy this guy's story. And sure enough, it was an incredible story. It, it, it it's a story that covered um, his time from enlistment um, all the way through to 1920. He he uh, he'd been all over the West. He'd been all over the frontier. He'd been to Alaska. He'd been to Mexico. Um, he he covered so much territory and told so many stories. It was incredible. And that uh, pension file and all the documents I'd mentioned earlier allowed me to write the book uh, on the story of the real Texas Jack. And I've got the I've really got those primary sources to thank for that because if it wasn't for that pension file and if it wasn't for those other records I mentioned earlier, um, people wouldn't know this guy's story. And it was really worth telling because it was it was the story of a man who left to fight for the union, then left home and spent fifty years on the frontier, basically. Um, and, or actually saw the frontier die and, and then came into the 20th century um, and saw all the changes that would have taken place um, along the way. So his, his pension file was an incredible find and, and I used it extensively through the book um, that resulted. Um, and I published that in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, I launched it um, at the... WWHA convention in Prescott, Arizona. Um, so the WWHA were instrumental in helping me with this book because they also published the biography of the man who wasn't Texas Jack. I'd written, um, we mentioned before, I wrote uh, an article for them on John Wilson for me and the guy who had been pegged as Texas Jack but actually wasn't. So they allowed me to set the record straight in an article uh, in their journal, the one that you uh, mentioned earlier, was great value. Um, So they were instrumental in helping me um, get published because as a writer, it's one thing to find the information, but then you've got to get it published. So they helped me get the first article published, which proved conclusively that the first guy was not the guy everyone thought. And then I launched the book about the real guy at their convention in Prescott in 2012. Um, and it was well received and I sold many, many copies there. And I was in Prescott, Arizona, so it was quite um, quite fitting that the book was launched in Arizona. And, and anybody um, who really uh, wants to read the full story of of these guys, what I did, I I thought it best to publish both biographies of both men in the same book so that people would get the two biographies for the price of one. There'd been one source to go to to prove one guy wasn't Texas Jack and one guy was. Um, And both those stories are included in the book. Um, there's an introduction by Doug Vermeen, um, which is, is quite lengthy. Um, I thought that was fitting because he was um, part of the Vermeen family and also part of the research team that helped produce both the article and the book. Um, there's many, many photos never published before from um, 
both the million families. Um, so you really do like I'm 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 plugging the book, but you really do get value for money because you get the full story of both men. And um, and if you order off the website, you'll also get a free biography of Perry Mallon, the, the man good that one. caused Doc Holiday so much mm-hmm. trouble. So um, we still have copies for sale, and um, I'm happy to um, – there'll be a, a personalized signature that will be inserted. Um, That's not Gene the, signing your name, right? I'm sorry? That's not Gene signing your name? No, those um, <laughs> books, um, the ones that are still for sale, have all been signed by me on one of my trips to America there. So uh, they're all personally signed by me But um, because but, I know some readers do prefer to have the author sign them. Um, I, I, and I do. So, yeah, so so I would, you know, I don't want to, I, I can't tell his story in a, you know, in the time we have left because it's just so long no. and he covered so much of the frontier. Um, he joined, I will tell you one thing, after the uh, after the Earth Vendetta, and he I, actually stayed. I want to ask you about the Earth Vendetta. Yep. Because we have, well, we, we have like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Yep. Before you go on, what happened? Because there's, I think there's a lot of people. How did a guy who aligned himself so well with the Earps, end up on the Vendetta ride. And it, that's probably what he's known for. How did yeah, that happen? So, so when Virgil Earp was attacked um, by would-be assassins in late December of 1881, um, there was there was a clear moment there where where Wyatt, um, Wyatt knew that he had to take some sort of action to save the rest of his family because he, he they, the, the the assassins had obviously um, were were ready to carry out um, their own vendetta against the Earps for uh, the OK Corral incident. So Virgil Earp was very seriously wounded um, in late, just after Christmas of December of eighteen eighty one. He was shotgunned in um, in the arm, and um, luckily he wasn't killed. But he he lost the use of um, I think his left arm, and they extracted bone from his arm, and it was a horrific injury, and it put him basically out of um, out of action. And and Earp immediately, this wired Earp immediately sent a, uh, a wire to the uh, territorial uh, U.S. Marshal Crowley Dake and. He, he asked for permission to be appointed as a U.S. Marshal with the authority to deputise men because he knew that that was the only way he was going to be able to um, have the authority to start tracking down these guys. He had no faith in uh, the county um, officials who were um, led by John Bean and uh, Virgil was the chief of police at the time of Tombstone when that happened, so he was no longer able to ride. So... Wyatt took upon himself to um, seek that um, permission from the from the U.S. Marshal. He, he immediately obtained that permission, and then what he did was deputise um, men to act as uh, one. They were going to act as deputy U.S. Marshals to try to capture these the would-be assassins, but they were also going to act as bodyguards for the for the Earp family. Mm-hmm. 
So you find the situation where Earp has gained the authority. Um, he's now a, a deputy US marshal, and he also has the authority to deputise men. So he deputises the men who he trusts, the men who he knows will stand up to um, anything the cowboys throw at him. And he goes, he chooses um, an interesting group of men, and John Vermeen, Texas Jack Vermeen, is one of those men. Um, probably because he'd already showed his uh, worth after the fire earlier that year when Virgil counted on him. I'd say he did a good job for Wyatt to deputise him again a, a second time. Uh, and he gathered other men, Morgan Earp and uh, Warren Earp were also deputised. Uh, we had Shannon McMaster, uh, former Texas Ranger, he was deputised. Um, Dan, um, Dan Tipton and Charlie Smith, they were two miners uh, and two uh, gamblers. They were deputised. Um, and you had uh, Jack Johnson, um, who was known as Turkey Creek Jack um, in popular um, books. Uh, he was also deputised. So you had quite a posse there and they were acting as... Um, not only, as I said, as deputies, but acting as bodyguards because Wyatt knew there was more coming. He knew there was there was trouble coming. That posse actually rode all through January and February um, hunting for various fugitives um, and hmm. unfortunately um, we know that Morgan Earp was then murdered um, in March of 1882 and that's when um, Wyatt decides that trying to arrest these people um, mm -hmm. was was not going to work. So that's when the the posse actually started killing people rather than trying to arrest them. Mm -hmm. um, a, a lot of the movies and a lot of people think that the posse was formed after Morgan was murdered, but the fact of the matter is that the posse had actually been formed after Virgil was attacked. They were ready to ride. They, they were well um, fitted with horses and uh, ammunition and guns and they were ready to ride. And when Morgan Earp was killed, uh, that's exactly what they did um, do in terms of taking um, taking their own action into their own hands. They, uh, they saw no um, value in trying to bring them before the courts because that just hadn't worked through January and February. So... Um, the vendetta ride, um, you know, became a a headline, and mm -hmm. they uh, they killed a few people along the way. Well, this is why you've got to get this book. Like, there's no there's no way around it because you can hear that Peter researched it, and at the same time. Everything is validated as primary source history and research. And that's why the book, not, we're not going to go deep into the book because honestly, it would do the book disservice. Um, the book is a yeah, it's is beautiful. Too, it's just too hard to, yeah, yeah, it's it too is. Hard to go into detail. But it, it's definitely a book for somebody who wants to, um, to get detail. Um, it, I don't, um, I don't write rehash is what I call it. I, I don't rehash things that people may have already uh, read. Some Obviously, they've read some of the vendetta, but 
Um, I go into great detail about the men who rode in that uh, vendetta. Um, I, I go because one of the things we talked about in the, I think it was the second podcast, was my interest in the vendetta was finding out who these guys were. So you'll learn a, a lot more about them as individuals, um, what their motivations might have been, and um, why they were willing to risk their lives. Um, because let's face it, they were they were very outnumbered, and they weren't as popular as the movies would make out. So um, it was a risky, it was a life and death situation. It was very risky to be riding with the Earps when they'd seen Virgil attacked and they'd seen Morgan murdered. Um, anybody who who aligned themselves with the Earps at that stage was taking a huge chance. So you had these these men were willing to uh, basically. I mean, they were they were being paid. Let let's. Um, yeah, but they were willing get to die. The they were willing to risk at, at all for their friendship and relationship with the Earps. Correct, and I, I, I will add that they were being paid. Um, there, there is a record that they were receiving five dollars a day. They were provided with uh, horse and tack, uh, rifle, shotgun, um, fire uh, pistols, and uh, ammunition, and and a payment. But um, they were. It was extremely dangerous. I mean, it was a volatile, deadly situation. And these guys stood with Earp, and and I always wanted to know why. And I I think I I I cover that in the book, and I hope I I provide some answers. We'll never know, you know, fully all the answers because none of those guys left um, any memoirs or reminiscence apart from Wyatt. So um, it's impossible to know exactly, but I do cover off um, my thought process on that and. And why they did what they did, and I guess another part of it is they were gamblers. Several of them were gamblers, so in, instinctively they were risk takers. Um, some of them were very hard men. John Jack Johnson had a had a very um, uh, hard reputation from Missouri. Um, he was probably the most dangerous of the Vendetta riders in terms of violence. Um, and uh, you had Sherman McMaster, who had been a Texas Ranger. He knew that country uh, very, very well, so he was quite valuable. Uh, he spoke Spanish, um, and he'd ridden all over uh, that particular area between El Paso uh, to Tombstone and then up to Silver City. And then uh, he, uh, he, he was a very, very um, well-travelled, let's say, uh, rider in that in that posse, we know Vermeen um, had um, sided with the Earps early. He sided with the Earps long before um, Virgil had been attacked. So he was probably uh, he probably had one of the longer associations. We know Charlie Smith was also a, a very close friend of the Earps, um, and his business partner had actually put up. Um, bail money for Wyatt after the uh, the gunfight at the near the OK Corral. So they all had a connection, and they were all valued in their own way, and they all brought something to that vendetta ride. Um, but they were they were definitely hard men. There's no doubt about that. Dan Tipton, uh, not much has been written about him, but he had a very hard reputation as well from Nevada. Um, he'd been in uh, Panamint. Uh, city, which was a, 
a very violent uh, silver mining town up in um, California. He'd been in Pioche, Nevada, which again was an extremely violent place. Um, so he, he'd seen and done quite a bit before he got to Tombstone. So these were not um, these were not your, your average kind of guys. These were these were very experienced. These were gunmen um, who had checkered pasts, if you want to put it that way. Um, so they they were the right guys for the job. I've got no doubt about that. Well, it's an amazing story, and uh, it took three parts to do it. But again, um, I cannot recommend you enough. Like I'm almost begging for those that are listening because you really do need to get the book. You can do so at tombstonevendetta.com. Uh, make sure to click on that tab in there where you can talk to Peter. Maybe ask him to come over to the house and wash the window screens or something. Like maybe he'll <laughs> he'll do that or or something. Or I, you should see his flower bed. He's a he loves Val- roses. value added. Value added. Yeah, yeah value, value added. added. But um, again, you can get that at the tombstonevendetta.com. And there was also multiple. Um, uh, comments made about the Wild West History Association and really helping Peter with his research and uh, and getting the story told. And they can be reached at the wildwesthistory.org, wildwesthistory.org. And again, the the journal, it's some people might say, oh, $75 is pricey. Well, it really isn't because there's no ads. Like you're not going to see an oil valet ad or or an ad for a stereo system or a TV or you know some stereo or some you know some hardware store. Every single page has got history. Every page has got something in there about the Wild West and American history, and it's really it's a phenomenal book. And it's put together by Roy Young and some other amazing people that I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And it's a phenomenal journal. Another one, too, again, we've mentioned, and that is the Tombstone Epitaph, the tombstoneepitaph.com. And really, you know, it's 25 a year, 45 for two, or 60 for three. You know, take the $60 for three, get it over with, and then I think you save like 15 bucks overall um, by doing a multi-year instead of a single year. And you're getting a true newspaper with true history. And I think that's a big part for me is even though we can get a Kindle or we can get the book online or wherever, I like to hold the book. And I like to be able to say, oh, I'm reading Johnny Tyler. And there's a mention, like Peter mentioned, I think, Piochi, Pioche, Nevada. Pioche, yeah. yeah Pioche, and, I, and I think Johnny Tyler was in Pioche, Nevada. I like to call it the, the Silver Camp tri- uh, Triangle. It's like the Bermuda Triangle. You had Crazy. Pioche, Nevada, Panamint City, California and then Tombstone, Arizona. And what's uh, what's really great about those three towns is that a lot of the same people ended up in all three towns. So they knew each other prior to getting to Tombstone, and that adds a whole new layer to any story you write about Tombstone. These guys, a lot of them had history, and they had good and bad history, but they knew each other from those other silver mining camps. And I think that's important because when we watch movies, and I'll say Tombstone, for example, Tombstone is a good movie. Um, it's entertaining, but on the timeline basis, because it is a movie, the timelines don't match out. And so I think that's why it's important for people when they're seeing the movie Tombstone, 
enjoy the historical value of it, but to really deep research it, it should go back and read the vendetta, uh, to, you know, Texas Jack Vermillion, and read about Johnny Tyler, and read about some of the other players, and including that would be like David D. Haas' book um, about, you know, the Earps in Southern California, and research and read about the Earps in San Diego with Garner uh, Plensky. I probably butchered his last name, but Garner's book about the the Earps in San Diego. There's there's so much history out there, but you know it's it's about that research and the true provenance. And so, um, Peter, I'm hoping you, are you gonna come, we're gonna come back and do Johnny Tyler next, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk about Tyler because I think he was badly misrepresented in that totally. Tombstone movie. Completely. Um, he comes off as a like he's written as a basically a a buffoon for wider to um, to to show his metal, but it 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 annoyed me in some ways, but it it motivated me in others. So I've I've decided, you know, I wanted to to find out a bit more about him and turned into a book. But um, that again, that goes back to those three cities I talked about before: the Peach, Nevada. Panamint City in California and Tombstone, Arizona, they're all linked. Um, and and uh, Tyler was in Pioche and then he was in Tombstone and a lot of guys uh, followed the same route. route. So they all knew each other, uh, which adds a, a layer that, that means that they had good and bad experiences with each other prior to Tombstone. So you brought your, your – I like to say they brought their suitcases with them, but they also brought a lot of extra baggage, um, good and bad. And you're you're 100% correct. Um, the Johnny Tyler stuff, I was surprised because, like you said in the movie, they make him to look like a buffoon when, you know, excuse my French on this, John, you know, um, Johnny Tyler was a badass. Like he was – he was not to be reckoned with, and he was smart, and he owned businesses. He he wasn't yeah. he wasn't a buffoon. He was a sharp individual, and he did know Doc Holliday. But the way it's portrayed in the movie Tombstone is not truthful, and so I think that I'm lo- really looking forward to breaking down the Johnny Tyler book. And if you want to get the Johnny Tyler book now, you can do so. By going on tombstonevendetta.com and you'll get an autographed book from Peter Brandt. And again, I really recommend actually that you get both of them because they're in a large format with um, beautiful covers on them. And uh, they're just really great, um, great books to read and to keep in your collection. Is there anything you want to add before we go? Um, just on the, the, uh, the Tyler thing, um, Anybody's interested, who's interested in Doc Holiday will enjoy that book as well because um, once Tyler gets to Leadville, um, I cover a lot of new information about Doc Holiday. So it's not just um, new information about Tyler. I, I found a lot of information about Doc Holiday that hadn't been previously published. And and that's something I was surprised at, and I'm glad you bring it up because when I read the book about Johnny Tyler, it actually it. it Somewhere along the line, it it you started in with the Doc Holiday stuff, and I was surprised. And correct me if I'm wrong. You will. I know you will. Um, that Doc Holiday was involved in city politics in Leadville. He was um, 
he was trying his best. He had he had a normal job uh, as a dealer. Yeah, he, like he was yeah, trying exactly. his best to not be the Doc Holiday that people think about, like the Val Kilmer version. He was exactly. just a man trying to live his life <clears throat> during those times. And, you know, when you read the book about Johnny Tyler and then the stuff about Doc comes out, it's not the Doc that you think. Um, I was doing some research about uh, the Earps and Tombstone and about how, in, in if I'm wrong, again, let me know, about how he and Wyatt and another man got in and became business owners of the Huachuca Water Company. Like they were, yes, they were instrumental in bringing water to Tombstone from the Huachuca Mountains where the snowpack was at. And that's not, you know, like a gambler, like you think, you know, Doc Holliday is, you know, you have that portrayal of him, either whether it's Dennis Quaid or whether it's Val Kilmer. But, but Doc was a legitimate person living a legitimate life, trying to do legitimate business with legitimate people. Yes, and and that comes, that definitely comes to the fore in Leadville, um, because it, as you as you correctly state, he was involved in local politics. Um, he made friends in Leadville. He he went to um, functions in Leadville. He went to annual uh, balls and um, get-togethers and. Yeah, he for a lot of it for the first two years in Leadville, he was a solid citizen. He right. he was trying to live down his past and and I think become a better person. And I think he did. I think he did too. Well, guys, we're going to wrap this one up. This has been a great one, with Peter. We're going to be back again. Uh, so watch for us. And so you know, on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, you can find uh, both of us on uh, Facebook and Instagram. You can find Peter on uh, Wild West History Association's Facebook page. You can find me on Cochise County Travels, Cochise County underscore travels on Instagram and Facebook. And if so doing, if you're a YouTuber, I've got some YouTube content on my air conditioning page, HVAC Reefer Guy. And there is um, a lot of video where I take, if you're looking for the video that's on the Facebook, but you don't want to go through all the archives, you can go on my HVAC Reefer Guy page, and that's HVAC Reefer, R-E-F-E-R, Guy, G-U-I-M-M on uh, YouTube, and there's tons of videos on there about my places and my travels where I've been, and we're updating them all the time. So again, huge thank you to Peter for part three, and uh, we'll be back with uh, Johnny Tyler next time. And uh, whatever else Peter wants to talk about, he's got an open invitation. So uh, thanks a bunch. Work safe, be safe. Um, uh, Be good humans. Um, If there's a charity out there that you like, like get involved. You know, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, 50 bucks. Like for me, food banks, I'm I'm blown away that a food bank can feed seven people with a dollar. Like they can make seven meals with a dollar. So, you know, you give 50 bucks, that's 350 people or 350 meals. So find a food bank because, man, there's so many people out there needing help and needing just a little extra care and reach out to those. Just give them a, give them a big old hug and tell your neighbor that you love them and that everything's going to be okay and that you're there when they need you. Um, anything from Peter? I think we're good.
Yeah, thank thank you very much, Mike, for the opportunity. I've, sure. I, I always enjoy talking to you and uh, appreciate all your support. Absolutely. Okay, guys, we'll see you. Have a great one. And we'll next time up, next time you see us, it's going to be about Johnny Tyler.